Hey, it's John, and before we get started, I'm on the phone right now with Gwen and Jay Casebeer. They run Black Trumpet Farms, and they are alumni of the Organic Grower School. And I just wanted to ask them about their farm and the school and how it helped them out. So I guess first, tell me a little bit about y'all's farm and what it is that you guys do. Uh, yeah, so we started back in 2016. Uh, we have uh, five and a half acres out in Leicester. Um, we specialize in gourmet mushrooms and a little bit of medicinal herbs. We're hoping to branch out. You know, definitely re- recommend from the beginning, even for people who are just thinking about it. It's a really good place to get started to find out how do you access land, how do you make these budgets to bring to banks, like how do you think about um, what resources you can access in your community to get to get apprenticeships and knowledge. And so I think it's just for people at all levels, it's really good to to you know for for a pretty low price you can really get a lot out of the thing that can, if you're really thinking about it for real to get into farming, like I don't, it, it can't do you wrong to, to get that basic information on how to make that transition to doing it. So it, it made a difference for us. I think, I think we could have done it without it possibly, but it made it so much easier and like really. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Jason, yeah, yeah. Probably not. Just, you know, as, as a method of like organizing thoughts and understanding challenges, that was um, very helpful. That's Gwen and Jay from Black Trumpet Farms with their ringing endorsement of the Organic Grower School. Are you looking to launch or expand a farming business? The Organic Grower School Farm Beginnings year-long farmer training program is now accepting applications. The Farm Beginnings class is a part-time 12-month training program that uses holistic management to help beginning farmers clarify their goals and strengths, establish a strong enterprise plan, and build profitable operation. The course uses a mix of classroom sessions taught by regional farmers, on-farm tours, mentorship, and even extensive farmer networking. Classes begin in October at Creekside Farm and Education Center in Arden, North Carolina. Here's the show. From 103.7 WPVMLP, you found the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. I'm Catherine Campbell. And I'm Jonathan Ammons. And for all you stuck in rush hour, here's a real sad song. This is Julia Jacqueline. The police met the plane. They let you finish your meal. I know you'd like to believe it, baby, but you're more kid than criminal. Just a boy who could not get to a domestic flight without lighting up in the restroom. Got cold cloud of smoke. Couldn't wait to call a friend We had to fly back home Never got the money back for that weekend Right there on the Sydney tarmac I, To my love 
by yourself is a struggle for anyone. But raising your kid when they are also an immigrant, when their culture is split between two worlds, that's even trickier. Author Diana Kelly Said had to do just that. But she also got to see something really life-changing in the process. Her son embracing both her American culture and her father's Afghani heritage. 
Here's Jesse Shires reading Diona Kelly Said's Food for the Half Grown. My 17-year-old son, Abraham, decides that he wants to cook for a friend. He pulls the small, cheap grill out of the closet. After a winter in hibernation, the grill is now missing a leg. But this is not a deterrent. What are you cooking? I inquire. Steak, he replies. He's very serious. His body language is charged. He is, dare I say it, acting manly. Steak? You bought steak? I ask. Indeed, he did buy steak with his recent paycheck from an occasional catering gig with the French chef that is also one of my many part-time jobs. We had recently worked a wedding, and now Abraham is holding two raw T-bones purchased with his tip money. He is very ceremonial. The opportunity to cook meat over an open flame has unearthed something primal. Outside is too humid, even in early evening. He wipes sweat from his face. I know how to cook steak, he says. After all, I am Afghan. Abraham is half Afghan, to be exact. The other half is me and American. Our kitchen, by the way, is global fusion. Some of his friends, the tall blonde ones who drive the family SUV, are amazed that we cook entire meals from scratch. Abraham likes to tell a story about the summer he spent in Saudi Arabia with his father. Abraham had carefully pan-fried a steak until exquisitely medium-rare. Abraham has adopted a particular philosophy about beef. He has learned by watching cooking shows on YouTube. This is raw, his father exclaimed. Then his father put a perfectly seared piece of steak into the microwave. When it came out, Abraham later shared, the meat was just gray. This travesty, often retold, represents the differences my son has with his father. Differences around religious practice, identity, and the right way to cook meat. My father knows nothing about the world, Abraham decides while bent over the small grill, now propped up on one side with a brick. He stokes the charcoal when he looks up and asks, How long do I wait before I put the steak on? Food is the map for how far I've traveled from my origin story. I grew up on pork chops and grits in the Florida panhandle. As an only child, I rode my little Honda 50 motorcycle up and down a rutted country dirt road. Grandma lived on the other side of the field within holler and distance. Food functioned as a communal experience. Everyone I knew ate the same things. This was evident at every family reunion, every church supper, every holiday meal. Mamie's sweet potato casserole, Gracie's veg all casserole, Auntie Lenny's banana pudding, Uncle Archie's ham, Big Mama's fried chicken, I could go on. My childhood was a certain very delicious, if predictable, menu, locked in place by Southern tradition. I was 12 years old before I tried Chinese food, and I had to go all the way to Jacksonville to do it. At Abraham's age, I entered community college with a GED. I lived in Tallahassee, where I encountered hummus years before it would become available in plastic tubs at grocery stores. I ate grape leaves and pad thai. Still trapped in the Florida panhandle, I used food to take me to places I couldn't yet go. I eventually married a man from Afghanistan, and away I went. I lived in Azerbaijan during my pregnancy. My cravings ranged from the Azeri McDonald's cheeseburger that reminded me of home to the street food katab, a savory pancake filled with meat and spice. I grew fat on Russian honey cake during my last trimester. Abraham entered the world in Baku's old city, even in the womb, I was splitting my son's tongue between continents, ensuring that his culinary cartography would be more spacious than mine. During my marriage, food marked his father's restricted view of the world. 
I wanted endless possibilities. Abraham's father wanted to be right. He insisted on eating halal meat, an effortless endeavor when we lived in the Middle East. This preference doesn't indicate religious rigidity by itself, but he doubled down once we moved to a small southern city where halal food was difficult to find. The kind of meat we consumed functioned as an identity boundary. We ate halal meat to mark us as different from those who did not. My ex kept a book of other prohibited items, like styrofoam. I pondered. Styrofoam is awful for the environment and therefore unethical? That wasn't the logic. Apparently, a lubricant of beef or pork fat might be used in some brands. But you don't eat the styrofoam cup, I wanted to shout. There were many things I couldn't voice back then, like, what does it reveal about you when you've linked your identity to a friggin' object that will never decompose? I know Abraham occasionally slips pig into his mouth. I know that he is drawing his boundaries with food, too, trying to chart who he wants to become. Oh, the long wail of summer, the thick, ripe heat of it, like a tomato about to burst. We are always bursting in this life of ours. My independence is now contingent on my Abraham's part-time job in fast food. We share one decrepit car. He is a rising senior and acts like he is all grown up. I have to remind him to gas up the car, to take the trash out, to wash his bed sheets. He texts to ask, when is dinner? I confront him about his low grade in French when I get his final report card, the grade he hid from me because he knows how I am. Of course, I overlook the high marks he made in the harder, more advanced classes. I yell at him. I tell him he needs to figure out who he wants to be. I tell him horrible, cliched things like, if he doesn't take things more seriously, he'll be flipping burgers the rest of his life. Abraham has one more year of high school. I am 45 years old and live paycheck to paycheck. We are still delicate creatures, the two of us. Last summer, Abraham spent three weeks in Afghanistan without his father in the company of cousins and uncles. This was his first real visit to the country. The time as a toddler doesn't count. This time, he tried hashish. He and his uncle endured vicious food poisoning from a street vendor's shor nakhud, chickpeas in a mint and coriander chutney. When Abraham returns to America, he informs me that he went to the hospital in Kabul. Just for fluids, he clarifies, as my face turned pale with this new information. The food over there is so good, he exclaims, and everyone wants to feed you. He has one hand in the Indian store's ice cream freezer as he reaches for a pistachio kulfi when he asks, Hey, what's that dried lamb called? Lundi. I surprise myself by instantly recalling the name in Dari, Afghan Farsi, of the dense, salty meat traditionally cured for winter months in Afghanistan. I can't describe the taste. There are no words in English. It has a deliciously gamey, chewy, concentrated flavor, something something almost holy. Lundi is the one true Afghan meat, something born in the steppes of Central Asia. I remember the first time I tried Lundi. Abraham was still small, maybe six years old, and we sat Indian-style on thick floor cushions in Peshawar. It was winter. The dried meat is a cold-weather food, and a long blue dress cloaked my legs. By the end of the meal, my hands would be slick with grease from Lundi and rice heaped high on a large platter. Abraham's paw prints would dot my dress to stain it forever. I felt so complete at that moment, catching fragments of Dari and speaking back in almost full sentences. 
Look how far this Florida girl has traveled. I failed to taste the approaching decay. Three years later, I would leave the marriage, the meat, and the modest dresses for an uncertain, very American future. Abraham holds up a creamy, cold coffee stick from the freezer. Pista, he says in Dari. Pistachio? He rarely speaks Dari with me. When I try, he protests. Nay, I shake my head. Um, I say. Um, what? Mango. The Dari word for mango is um. I remember names of food. I remember that he is only 17 years old. I remember he has always been his mother's child. He didn't sleep in his own bed until he was six years old. He slept next to me, fist wrapped tight around my hair, his breath tethered to mine. Abraham chooses the pistachio. Memory and language live on the tongue. Where do they go when they leave? I started working for the French chef during the Christmas season when Abraham was 13 years old. Desperation rolled like smoke in my mouth. I stank of it. I was recently unemployed, fired from a position at a mental health clinic. The job had functioned as my rebound divorce relationship. Toxic, gaslit dynamics, a constant energy drain. A friend suggested the French chef might be hiring seasonal help. It was for Abraham that I worked cocktail parties and limped in pain after, too poor to buy good shoes. I would cry in gratitude when driving home, a bag full of leftovers in the passenger seat, sometimes with extravagant things like beef tenderloin and dark chocolate mousse. We managed to eat for a month from the holiday excesses of the rich. I was so fragile that winter, almost broken and always scared. Ibrahim never knew that I felt ruin waiting around the next corner. Four years later, Abraham has mastered steak and chocolate chip cookies, an American miracle invented by two female chefs in 1938. Even the French chef is impressed with the cookies. The recipe Abraham uses is from a cookbook called A Taste of Home. The irony of it, an Afghan boy perfecting the American chocolate chip cookies, is wonderful. In a year, Abraham will be unleashed into the world. This is a very American rite of passage to send our children away to college as half-formed things. I cannot recall the last time I told Abraham that I love him. Instead, I remind him to wash his sheets. Instead, I say things like, did you eat? These days, I return to the Middle East at least once a year. Ruin feels like it lives a few blocks away. It is at more of a distance, at least. I can remember the Persian word for life, zindagi. Everything real decomposes like food and unused language. Even our stories shatter to ripen again. Oh, the long wail of life, the thick heat of it. Abraham and I, we are always growing up. May we burst from the delight of it all. You're guaranteed to have a real good time If you go to San Francisco and the weather's fine Something rare happens in the air I was walking through the park Getting stoned with local losers Dreaming of my girl
can love I thought I felt the stars The atoms of my mind drifting apart That's something I didn't know how to do That's something I learned to do Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by the Marketplace Restaurant, celebrating 40 years as Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant. Founded in 1979, the Marketplace Restaurant has always had the mission of bringing Asheville the best the region has to offer from their own backyard, farmed by our neighbors. Through the day 
as if on an ocean, waiting here, always failing to remember why we came, came, came. I wonder why we came. Mackenzie Lunsford has written the history of Asheville's food scene in real time. Beginning as a food critic for the Mountain Express in 2005, she morphed that position into a food reporter before moving over to the Asheville Citizen Times in 2012 to develop the Asheville Scene publication. And to say that she stuck around there would be an understatement. She has survived five rounds of layoffs as the paper, like all local newsrooms, has struggled to keep the presses running. An award-winning journalist and author, Mackenzie has reported on Asheville's food world with the tenacity and seriousness of a beat reporter. She's documented its growth from a handful of mom-and-pop shops to a globally recognized and awarded food scene. John sat down with Mackenzie to find out what she's learned over the years and what she thinks about the future of food media and Asheville. Um, No, but you've been in this game a really long time here. I feel like um, you've documented pretty much the development of the Asheville food scene. I I have uh, whether I've done you know done it correctly or the right way the entire time is in dispute. But <laughs> <laughs> I have played that role. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I think that that's. Um, I was having this conversation the other day of like one of the things that I really love about journalism and about writing for um, local publications is. Uh, when I was in high school, I went to. We had a field trip that took us to the uh, um, Asheville Public Library to teach us about researching and processes of research. And so we went through like the microfiche machines, and we went through all the archives of newspapers, and through like JSTOR with all the archives of peer-to-peer review. And one of the coolest things to me was like when I found the Asheville Citizen Times um, archive of all the microfiche. And then realizing that I could go back to, like, the years my grandmother was a kid mm-hmm. and read the paper and see what was going on. And it gave me, like, a context for her life and where she was growing up and how she 
what she saw and experienced in town, who owned what businesses, what restaurants were opening, right. what restaurants were closing, like um, all of that stuff, and what yeah. roads were being built. And, you know, she, as a local reporter, you're documenting all of that. Newspapers has, yeah, exactly. Newspapers have kind of borne witness to um, the minutia of, of daily life in a small town, in every small town everywhere. And that's what scares me the most about the decline of print journalism, that there are few people who, you know, we, we myself and my colleagues and everybody else that I know that works at, at a newspaper, you know, it's their full-time gig, gets up every morning and just kind of writes about what's going on, you know, whether it's some stupid, boring policy meeting or, you know, uh, dirty water, (laughs) for example. I mean, you know, uh, it's, it's a document, it's a a living, breathing document. And it scares me to imagine that that might go away. Yeah. Someday. Yeah. Yeah. When did you shift away from doing food criticism to focusing more on the journalistic aspect of things. So that was a that was a John Elliston decision. So when I so I was the first person to do um like a regular column at the Mountain Express and then I left like I said for a couple of years or maybe it was like two and a half years to play a restaurant owner and then do other things. But um it, Hannah Raskin, who is just a fantastic food writer, was basically like she came in there in she's the middle. She's in Charleston now, right? She's in Charleston, and she's, you know, James Beard yeah. award-winning. I mean, she's just fantastic. She's really great. She's a mover and a shaker. She came in to do the food criticism. And I think somewhere near the end of her tenure, they decided, John decided that he wanted to reimagine the food section and have it be more focused on, he thought that the city could support more of a journalistic take on food and I think to be completely honest with you, it had something to do with not pissing off people anymore, too. I mean, yeah. it just was, it was a little bit too much of a rub to run like a community-focused, advertising-dependent newspaper, you know, and, and then, you know, can... can can I curse on this thing? Sure, of course. <laughs> right. We'll just leave it out. <laughs> um, well, I, I think it was a little bit too much of a conflict to have this community-focused newspaper that is dependent in a large part on advertising dollars to just start crapping on on all of the uh, people who advertise in the food Paying section. Paying the money. Paying for I, the paper. I think that that was part of it. That was a, probably a small part of it, um, but it was part of it. Yeah. But it wasn't... I liked the decision. It wasn't, you know, we're going to start pandering to these people and write, like, fluffy reviews. It was like, let's focus on news and other things b- beyond what's on your plate. Yeah. And Which has informed my career ever since. Yeah. So. What scares you in the world of food journalism today? <laughs> what scares me personally or what scares me for the future of food journalism in general? Yes. <laughs> okay. What scares me about? Let me think about that. I. God, there's so many things. I think that it's being kind of watered down. It's sort of like 
anyone can do it. And the I I I believe in ethics and journalistic standards and you know um keeping conflicts of interest at bay and I think the more that people don't think about those sorts of things the more it's just going to devolve into in some respects a big advertising celebration <laughs> you know like I, I, you know, scratch that a little more. Well, it's just kind of, I try not to be too promotional. Um, I have a lot of people who sometimes make comments about what I do and say that my job is to promote local restaurants and that isn't my job at all. How do you see it? Um, I, I mean, I'm just trying to... Uh, how do I see it? I, my job is as a as a journalist, as a newspaper reporter, is to report what's going on, and also to you know tell people about cool stuff that's happening too. It's not all super serious, right? But I mean, I'm not. My function is not solely to make restaurant owners happy, right? You know, that's just not it, and occasionally there are going to be issues. You know, like if I write about labor issues, I, I might piss some restaurant owners off. I would hope that they know that I'm not, you know, purposefully trying to take a swipe at their business or them or that sort of thing. But um, <clears throat> in in an effort also to write honestly about the local restaurant scene, I try not to take gifts of any sort and I decline free meals often and sometimes that makes me feel like a little bit inhospitable or uh like I'm I'm not not inhospitable like I'm not um accepting of other people's hospitality but there are so many food writers who do do that bloggers who take free meals everywhere and that's you know part of their thing that they do and that's fine but it's just different from newspaper journalism I'm sure there are people listening to this that are going to Say, well, wait a minute, your last article was 20 meals under $10 in town that was totally just promoting restaurants for their cheap food. And you just said that you started this not having any experience in journalism at all and just cut your teeth just walking in the door, kind of an anyone-can-do-it mentality. Yeah, well, that's a really good point, yeah. But, I mean, I, I had lived and breathed restaurants. Right. I had worked in them. I had done nothing else. It, I wasn't just coming in off the street. But I also wasn't a trained journalist. And, yeah, I mean, there are going to have to be I, – I do work for a, a corporation. I do have a job. You know what I mean? I, I yeah. have to write the stories. You have editors. That you have people bosses. Will, no, that's not what I mean at all. I mean, it's – it. I have to write the stories that lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of people will read so that I can ha- spend time on writing stories that are maybe more important that fewer oh, people yeah. will read. But there are, you know, there are certain, there's a certain job that we have to do and we're aware of that. You know, we can't just tinker around and um, do passion projects all the time, although I always have a passion project going on while I'm writing these these stories that lots and lots of people are clicking on and reading. Right. You know, does that make sense? Yeah, it reminds me of uh, when uh, when 
the director David Lynch put out uh, Inland Empire. He did this press conference. And at the press conference, someone asked him about the Zales Diamond commercials that he had directed in the 80s. <laughs> That's really funny. And he uh, he gets really angry and like slams down his cup of coffee on the on the podium and goes, I'm going to, he's like, I want you all to listen because I'm only going to say this once. There are things you do for money so you can do the things you love. Yeah. Yeah. Next question. <laughs> But you know, the, it not we're not in we're not in the newsroom, um, you know, cranking out clickbait. But yeah. but we do need readers. And Don't you feel like there is a bit of that now, though? That there is a bit more of that. I mean, there's we're all having to put out a lot more fluff pieces these days. We're having to put out things that people read, and we have many, many meetings about the best way to do that and still provide a very, what I believe is to be a very important service to the community. You know, and honestly, part of my job is to draw draw people in to come for the the fluffy food pieces, and they stay for the, like, um, Wanda Green investigation. Right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, <laughs> you came for the ten cheap meals. You <laughs> stayed for the corruption. But you know it, that doesn't mean that that I can't do what I consider to be some important work from time to time while I'm there. Yeah, you know, and and like I said, and some of these things are like vanity projects. I don't know if anybody's going to read them or think that they're important or even particularly good, but they. <laughs> But they feel good. They make they make the clickbait go down better. <laughs> We've always got the white whale to chase. Yeah. Um, you've documented pretty much the growth and explosion of Asheville's restaurant scene from before it was known as a restaurant city to... I mean, you were writing about this when... We got our first James Beard nominee, right? When, mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you've followed that from early 2000s to now when we've had, what, six James Beard nominees at this point? Seven? Um, I don't know. I mean... to our From our city just being like a small little town with half the buildings shut down downtown to a developed and grown food culture where every other door is a restaurant. Um What what's good about that? What's bad about that? How did how is this town I mean this town's very different than it was. Mm-hmm. Um a lot's changed and I don't think all of it's been for the better. Mm-hmm. Um what worries you about this scene that we've built? And that in all honesty you were helpful and instrumental in helping to cultivate because of your position. Well, I wouldn't say I have that much power, first of all. <laughs> I think you underestimate that. But uh, what worries me the most about Asheville's food and beverage scene will wrap everything in together. And um, I, I think I've, I've mentioned this before, is, is that I don't want to see Asheville become a caricature of itself. You know, when, when people are with tons of money are moving here to open breweries that, and I'm not talking, I'm actually, I'm not talking about Sierra Nevada or New Belgium. I, I think that those are people with lots of money. They came here and opened breweries that, um, 
have their own authentic culture. But what I'm wary of are the people who come here with a lot of money and open sort of a caricature of what they see as Asheville culture, right? And you know what some of these businesses look like. They're like all rustic wood and, you know, you know what I mean? They're like trying to cultivate and fake an authentic vibe. Right. And and I, I, I see that happening. I've seen it happening for a long time and it rubs me the wrong way and and the thing that was special and still is i can't say you know asheville is not special anymore obviously but the thing that always used to make asheville special when i first moved here in the late 90s was that it just was it didn't try to be anything it didn't try to cater to anyone and there wasn't is much going on. So people were trying to create things, you know, things to do, things to eat, things to like, you know, things to make existence wonderful. And that just isn't really necessarily the vibe anymore. Um, it, it's to the, a lot of people are, are after money and we are all after money to a degree because, that's, that's why what, you open a business. That's what. That's why you open a business. That's why you get up and go to work every day. You know, you want to eat. It's, I'm not recommending anybody become a pauper necessarily, but like the um, the the aim is different, and certainly not for everybody because there there are people who are just full of heart and soul and authenticity, and they work with their local farmers and they mean it, and they walk the walk, and they're at the farmers market every weekend, and like this is their passion. And I mean, you know, the chefs I'm talking about It's you can tell just by looking at their menu or having a single conversation with them. But, but the, the money that's just pouring into this town is good for certain things, but the inauthenticity that's coming with it, I worry will crush the authentic spirit of this city. And just, I don't want us to become, you know, beer Disneyland or malt Disney World is the thing that I always say. And it's just so stupid, but I'll, I'll say it again. Malt Disney World. Do you think it's too late? Uh, I mean, how do you come back? I don't know. It's just a different thing now. Yeah. And I've been here for more than half my life at this point, which scares me to death. <laughs> but I mean, it just is a different place now. And, and, you know, and I'm a different person than I was when I was 20 years old and moved here. You know, I, it just is what it is. And it's, it's up to, um, it's up to the people who live here and the people who are stakeholders to preserve some of the actual culture of the place and, um, remember what that is and, um, hopefully, you know, it's up to some of us to tell an accurate story of what that is. Yeah. Yeah. That was John talking with author and journalist Mackenzie Lunsford. You can find her work at the Asheville Citizen Times. I also recommend checking out John's extended interview with Mackenzie on our second Helpings spinoff podcast coming out later this month. They get deep on issues of journalistic integrity, why local newspapers matter, and what it's like to be called fake news. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour.
There is something devastatingly intimate about how we eat. For California writer Anne Hillisland, that intimacy became even more abundantly clear at her father's bedside when she visited him in hospice care. That's when she discovered just how personal every bite is and just how much those bites can mean, particularly when it's being hand-fed from someone you love. My father wouldn't eat. My mother cooked hamburger, which he'd always loved. My sister Janet made deviled egg filling. I searched Greek yogurt brands for the highest protein. To appeal to the engineer and dad, the hospital doctor explained scientifically why dad had to eat. I only understood this. Without protein, his veins couldn't keep the liquid inside. His dialysis would continue to fail. The kidney specialist told him that he could get out of the hospital and live a good life, but you have to eat. Driving home from the hospital, Janet told me how dad's mother died. When they told grandma they'd have to amputate her foot, she stopped eating. Dad had already lost the toes of one foot and the other foot up to the ankle. Since dad had always loved bowls of ice cream with Hershey's syrup, I felt triumphant when a helpful nurse got me a tiny cup of vanilla. That had to have some protein, right? I fed dad spoonfuls. Am I about done, he asked, when the container was still half full. My mother, my five siblings, and I took shifts going down to the cafeteria for lunch. Since we never knew when the doctors would do rounds, we wanted someone in the room. Mom often packed a sandwich and ate it next to Dad's bed. At the cafeteria, I always got a window table, though the second-floor cafeteria looked out over a flat rooftop between two eight-story towers. The first day I ate there, the rooftop had late snow on it. Someone had placed a family of yellow rubber ducks on the shingles, where they sat forlorn in the white. My siblings universally pan the cafeteria food. It's like they're cooking for the patients. Everything is bland, 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 my brother Arnie said. Janet and my brother Eric confined themselves to the salad bar. I brought my lunch. I'd eat my mushroom and kale soup while watching the typical Washington rain pool around the ducks on the roof. Then I'd dig into whatever dessert I had bought at the cafeteria that day. Apple pie, cheesecake, a giant snickerdoodle. Dad consumed mostly protein drinks and boost pudding. His mind was wandering. When I asked him if he wanted to eat some of his breakfast, he said that my brother, who wasn't in the room, was making him some toast. I soaked tiny shreds of his cold toast in milk so he could get it down. He ate two bites. My last night before I had to fly home, he was a little more alert. My husband and I were alone in the room with him. Dad asked if we had eaten dinner yet. You should go to La Casita, he said, naming a neighborhood restaurant far away in California. Maybe he'd eat some refried beans, my husband said. I doubted it. I doubted he would eat anything. The morning before my plane left, I paid Dad one last visit. We were tracking every spoonful he ate on a chart on the door. Two bites of egg salad, half a protein shake, a teaspoon of peanut butter. The nurse came in with a concoction of ice cream, loose pudding, and protein drink. I've never made one chocolate on chocolate on chocolate before, she said. 
I remembered my dad running the blender, making peach milkshakes for the whole family. I stood next to his bed and put the straw in his mouth. He looked at me with the bright, almost happy gaze he was using now that he was not fully in our world. He slurped the dark brown concoction without taking his eyes off me. A little more, I said. I could tell he didn't want to drink any more, but he finished it, all the way to the sludgy bottom. When I went out to record it on the door chart, Eric asked, How much of it did he eat? The whole thing, I said. The whole thing? Then I realized how unusual that was. Dad knew I was leaving. I think he drank it all for me. Later at the Glaston Airport food court, I ordered a pizza, gooey mozzarella slicked with olive oil on a chewy charred crust. Around me, people wolfed down Wendy's fries, sushi, and pork burritos, while outside the last of the sunset faded into endless blue. That was Olivia Springer reading Anne Hillisland's Tracking Every Spoonful. You can find that story and catch up on our past episodes on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com.
Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Founded in 1979 by the pioneering Mark Rosenstein and reimagined by Chef William Disson. Billy D! A decade ago, The Marketplace Restaurant is celebrating its 40th anniversary this year. Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant, The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region and our farmers have to offer. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is a production of Dirty Spoon Media, copyright 2019. All of the text from our stories is available on our website, dirty-spoon.com. There you can also catch up on past episodes as well as subscribe to the show and help us keep going through our Patreon. The incredible artwork on that page is by Katrin Doza, Corinne Pease, Kelly Minear, Garnet Fisher, Paul Choi, and Marianne Papineau. Music in this episode by Julia Jacklin, Twain, Brian Eno, Jay Sam, Emily Wells, Tom York, The Dead Texan, Susumu Yakata, Alti Ovarson, and Tom Rogerson. Catherine Campbell is our editor-at-large, sources our stories, and handles our website and marketing. Jonathan Ammons is our editor-in-chief, handles the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and writes some of the original music. Tune in next month for more stories, conversations, and music from the people who shape what we consume right here on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour, 103.7 WPBMLP. Hey, it's John, and before we go, just a quick reminder that this episode was brought to you by the Organic Grower School. Are you looking to launch or expand your farming business? The Organic Grower School Farm Beginnings year-long farmer training program is now accepting applications. The Farm Beginnings class is a part-time 12-month training program that uses holistic management to help beginning farmers clarify their goals and strengths, establish a strong enterprise plan, and build profitable operation. The course uses a mix of classroom sessions taught by regional farmers, on-farm tours, mentorship, and an extensive farmer network. Classes begin in October at Creekside Farm and Educational Center in Arden, North Carolina. Thanks.